<laughs> well, <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, yeah, if you're wondering why does this guy's face look so familiar, you can thank Kim Lawless for that. Um, <clears throat> there she is. I was wondering if she was going to be in the room. Um, Kim has had me star in about every E-Kids video that she could think of, and she would always make the excuse of, you know what this one really needs? A man. <laughs> and so um, I have gone outside my personality with her many, many times and have done things, and if you want to check those out, uh, here's my uh, ridiculous plug for E-Kids Studios. You go on YouTube, it's on E-Kids Studios, and there's tons of videos your kids can watch. And they're like a minute long, and some are 15, and you just keep going. Is that, is that good, Kim? Is that enough? Okay, great. All right. <clears throat> and you can just see my face all the time. <laughs> um, but if I had done my job right, you were never supposed to see me. Never supposed to see me. Um, but I, I'm Rick. My wife, Michelle, is with me today, along with uh, some friends. We have two kids, Noel and Josiah. They're eight and five. And uh, we've just been on this amazing roller coaster for, oh gosh, I, you know what? You said 19 months, and that scared me because <laughs> I, I didn't think it was that long yet. Or maybe it's longer. I don't know. Um, but uh, we've been trying to start a church uh, called Kingship Church. And uh, kingship is, is referring to the authority and manner in which Jesus will reign as king. And, and that's what our church wants to be about and wants to talk about, is the way that Jesus behaves and the way that he demonstrates his love and his kingship uh, to us. But a lifetime ago, I wasn't actually in ministry in any way. I actually started my career out in film. I was a film editor down in Portland. Um, I loved it a lot, but I discovered real quickly that being in a dark room eight hours a day, that was not my personality. And uh, God just kind of swooped me out of that and put me into uh, ministry. And so film was not the reason actually why I ever approached Evergreen or ever came to be known here. Although Kim's promise of fame was very tempting, but it, but it was not the reason. So, see, before arriving at Evergreen, I had actually been in youth ministry for the last 12 years, and I've been ministering to youth and young adults, and I, I loved it. I, I loved being uh, a youth pastor. I loved doing it with my wife, and, and the two of us just being able to be with kids at such a pivotal point in their life. I can't tell you or encourage the church enough of how important the youth phase is here. That kids, what's going on with them, there's so much choices and decisions and uh, experiences that they're having in that, that the church needs to be present with kids. And so I, I just absolutely love that. I always loved that. And so at the end of our tenure, it was surprising to me because I would have told you when I was in school, like, oh, I'm going to be a youth pastor for the rest of my life and discovered quickly that I can't make plans uh, as best as God. So at the end of our tenure, my wife and I were trying to discern what God was having for us in the situation that we were in and this feeling and this calling of that we needed to be discerning for something else. And then I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew that there was a direct calling to have change happen. Something uh, was supposed to be happening. So every night, my wife and I would put the kids to bed, and then we would take some time to talk about it. And uh, every time we got to the part in the discussion about God calling for change, there's this one thing that would always keep coming up, and it was the house. We loved our house. Love it. Um, it was our kids' home. It was our home. 
It was a, it was a quaint little house. It's, it, it's not that big, but it fit us. It had lots of projects. That I'm sure that those are like your homes where, oh yeah, that could be repaired and fixed. And, and so I'd gather a group of friends and we'd start fixing up. And now it's, it's more than just uh, brick and mortar. Now it's ours, right? It's got our stamp on it. Loved our house. Our neighbors knew us as pastors. They knew us as nothing else but pastors. And it was because the cul-de-sac was always full. Always full. Uh, there were youth constantly. I don't think my kids knew what life was or what family was without youth around. Right? They're just constantly there. One time, we actually got 75 kids in this home. And um, I don't recommend it. <laughs> But we did it, and we loved it. We loved that type of life that we were building. And so to think about, oh, that he's calling for something different, and then the house, which is like, what about the house? Love this house. And so we just like, that's just, it's too much. I can't, you know, let's just veg out for the rest of the night, and we would get into the crevice of the couch, and then we would just turn on the TV. We wouldn't even pray about it. And until we realized what the house actually was for us, it took some time, but we realized that the house had become an idol. It had become a barrier that kept us from exploring what God had for us. But what's the worst part is that it was actually something that we valued more highly than God himself. And the house and the life that we built around it. It stopped us from praying because the thought of letting it go was just too overwhelming. And that means it kept us in a state in our life which was not the fullness of life that God wanted to have for us. That's what idols are. They're, they're the thing that replaces the position of God, whether it's in his authority, whether it's in the plans that he has for us, or the goodness, or the love that he demonstrates to us. Sometimes we just kind of go, you know, that's nice. I think this is better, <laughs> right? Idols are the dethroning of the king. And most of the time, it's very subconscious. It's not like we sat there and we said, let's not pray. Let's not do that tonight. It's like we actually, we, we just never thought of it. It never came to mind that we even should pray or that we needed to pray. I, it was a lack of understanding in that and then the importance of what praying would be for us in that moment. We acted like the idol could provide the better thing, the better life. And sometimes we all trust idols to fulfill us more than the author of the universe, the one that's actually titled sustainer of life. So we realized more than just changing our mind about the house, that we needed to surrender the idol to God and remove it. And we committed to selling the house. And then once we did that, once that happened, God spoke clearly and purposefully. See, what we needed first was to become available to respond to God. And at that point, we were just not there yet. That's not to say that there weren't moments of doubt or why, but we recognized God's placement on the scale of importance and acted upon that. See, to be available to God's use requires two very important things. First is that we center our lives around the story of God's kingdom, knowing that it's his kingdom, and his kingdom is being backed up and told by the true author, so Jesus commands us, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all things will be given to you as well. See, it's not that we can't have nice things. We can certainly have a house, a family, that boombox with the detachable speakers. We can have all that stuff, and it's, it's good stuff. 
But when that stuff, when we choose to put it before God, what we're actually doing, we're not letting God use it because we're not giving it to him. See, as we work and build a life here on earth, we can become filled with the worry about all the things that help us sustain our picture perfect life. I think we say that phrase an awful lot, picture perfect life, and we, we talk about it as if other people have that, right? But not us, right? We're, we're living for God. But it's surprising how much even I realize how much that's driving me. We miss that his kingdom is the centerpiece of the table where all other things flow from and complement the central focus around his righteousness, his true goodness that he has for us. I'm, I'm really into decor. Our house is awesome. It looks cool. And there's always something in the center of, or something of the room that draws and everything else flows from that. And that's what God does with his goodness and his righteousness is that when it's the centerpiece, it's the first thing that your eyes are drawn to, everything else is reflected by that thing. The second thing that we need is the readiness to respond. That be, Because of our focus that we're not distracted, and that we can choose to respond when God calls us to action. That is when we are activated. And it's this word that has been ringing in our ears at Kingship, and we can't kind of get away from it. Uh, there's a new movie coming out. It's called Free Guy. It stars Ryan Reynolds. I'm sure it's going to be funny. I'm not endorsing it. I haven't seen it. But I have seen the trailer about 19 months because it was supposed to come out at the beginning of COVID, and it's finally arriving. But, but the, the story of Free Guy is supposedly this, is that uh, it's just a guy going, he's just a normal dude going around his life until he puts on these glasses and he discovers that he's in a video game, right? That it's uh, Grand Theft Auto all around. He looks around, everything's got price tags, all sorts of rewards that he's supposed to get. And, and that is what it's like to be activated. That we're walking around in life and then all of a sudden we can put on this new vision, these new eyes, and see the kingdom that's actually laid out in front of us. And everything looks different. That's what it means to be activated. And so being activated in, in the moment in the Bible, this, it reminds me of Isaiah 6. And so that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And so if you, you have a Bible, you can open it up to Isaiah 6. We're going to look at the first few verses uh, together. But I'll, I'll kind of explain and give you a little heads up of what's happening. The, the moment, this is the moment in the Bible when Isaiah is commissioned by God to deliver the Lord's message to his people. See, the, the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel were both spiritually and literally falling apart. They were plagued with worship of false idols and being overthrown by their enemies. And the message that God was demanding, commanding, and asking to be delivered was one of judgment, but it was also one of salvation. And then there's a reason why it was those two things together. And so Isaiah retells his encounter here in, in chapter 6 of uh, his encounter with God. He, he has a vision, but it's, it's more than that. It's a visible manifestation that he is now seeing and in the presence of God. It's accompanied by these angelic creatures who couldn't even look upon God's holiness. They, they, these creatures actually had like uh, three sets of wings, so they had six wings. And, and in these sets, one was covering their, their feet, that dare not touch the ground. And then, and then the other set's actually covering their eyes so that they cannot see the holiness of God. And that's why in the, in the verses it talks about God's holiness. It says, holy, holy, holy. Three times 
three times. Ever wondered why in the Bible that it always says holy, holy, holy? Is because what it's doing there is a setting apart how holy God is. It's not just that he's holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And so these, these extra wings would guard them from their unworthiness to see upon this holiness. And it begs the question, how on earth is Isaiah allowed to look upon God if these creatures can't? Unless, of course, it's by the grace of God that he's allowed to do this. And so Isaiah, he, he gives us into a glimpse of what God looks like. And he doesn't describe God's face. Like, he's got a couple dimples. He's always smiling. He kind of just, he, I don't think he can because everything else around him is just, his glory is so much. And so he describes the details around what's happening. First, he says that the Lord is sitting on his throne. This means that God is in all power. He is in control. That sin is not reigning, but God is reigning. And then he's exalted. That everything around him, everything is begging to lift up God and worship him. And the third thing is he notices is that the king's robe is filling the temple. Everywhere that there would or could be, this robe is filling the room. And it is God's glory covering everything. And, and God has this message. His words need to be delivered to his people. And we come upon this verse, it's probably a verse that you've heard before, but here it is in, in chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. See, Isaiah, much like the disciples, that when Jesus calls us out of the boat, we immediately respond that because of the authorship or the authority he has, we are willing to drop everything and follow him. I was not ready to do that until we were able to recognize that we were worshiping, and what we were worshiping was a false idol and had given it false authority. We had let it sit on the throne in our lives. And that process of removing that brought healing like the healing that God gave Isaiah to prepare him to respond in that way. He didn't just get to say, here am I, send me, because there were things already blocking him from that. See, right before this, Isaiah, because he was looking upon God's holiness, and he had said, and I say, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man. I'm not God. I'm not like you. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so you might be thinking, well, that's exactly how I feel. How on earth am I supposed to be available for God? I'm a wreck. Why would he even use me? Well, I want to say, don't count yourself out just because you can't see what God sees in you. Because I... I almost did that too. And God brings forward to Isaiah this burning coal from the altar, where the altar is in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and it is taken upon there, and then it is placed on Isaiah's lips. These are the same lips that he is going to use to share the message of God to his people. And the Lord declares this, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away your sin atoned for. So it's not just uh, become available to do tasks. Here am I. Put me to work. It is also to be 
prepared and ready and available to be transformed by his mercy. Here am I. Mold me. Michelle and I equate our story to the story of Abraham. It's the the story of of God saying, go, I want you to go to the promised land. And and it gives very little detail to to Abraham. But he he gets up, packs up his family, and they get on the road to just go. Um, And the vision of planting a church began much like that. It began to unfold, but it didn't make any sense because uh, we had no detailed roadmap. There was like, I, I don't even know how to begin or how to do that, how that's even supposed to happen. And I don't know, maybe you're like me, but like, I want all the details. I want them all. And God's like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> right? Because that's not faith, right? That's not faith if we had it all. Otherwise, we would go along the way. We would, you know, it's like uh, Back to the Future. We'd, we'd have the almanac and we'd end up like Biff. We'd all think we'd end up like Michael J. Fox, but we'd all end up like Biff in the end, okay? That's not faith. It's not faith when we can determine what to do next, right? See, Abraham was faithful in responding to the individual steps because he was trusting God in that. So like a snowball effect for us, um, we just kept taking steps. And each step we would take was just an individual step, and we would focus on trusting that or trusting God in that. And that's how we found Jared and Ann. Someone told us that there was this power pastor couple that had this amazing method for discerning what God is asking of you. All right. (laughs) That sounds good. Little step. We'll go do that. And so I emailed Jared and Ann, and they emailed me right back. I was a little shocked. (laughs) It was like that. (laughs) And then we met the next day. This is going real fast. (laughs) And then uh, we sat down for coffee, and um, they don't share their part of the story, but when, when they walked in, Jared's wearing this leather jacket. And so I figured, like, all right, he came in on a motorcycle. This dude knows what he's doing, <laughs> right? But Ann's wearing a dress, and then I was like, mm, I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and I just, they start asking me questions. I start um, telling them our story. And then Jared, he gets this grin on his face. I, I'm not going to do this well, but he goes like this. You are a church planter. Did I get his dialect right? The whole setup? That's him, right? Big old smile on his face. He's just so excited to be there and be witnessing what's happening. It's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, I don't think, I don't know, we've never seen that. And Jerry just is like smiling at me as if like, you just wait. You'll, you'll figure it out. You'll come around. <laughs> All right. So, see, God was calling us to transition into planning a church, and every time we took one step, it led to the next one. So, so here's what happened. After transitioning um, in this, this phase of discernment and our house finally being sold, I quit my job, right, telling the family, here we go. We move into my parents' house. We're going to be there temporarily because we're going to figure out what's happening. And then Anne does this. She invites us to attend Evergreen as a place of rest for our family, a Sabbath, if you will, from working for the church and simply being allowed to worship. I can't tell you how appealing and um, freeing that was of, of leading for so long and just to become part of the congregation and to be able to sit there with no expectation on me other than to worship my God. 
one week. <laughs> all that, all that happened the weeks leading up to March 17th, 2020. And you're like, I don't even know when COVID started. I do. I'm well aware. Cool, everything's shut down. No home. Suddenly living with parents. Mmm, that's very interesting, right? Oh, we're all going to sit in here together? Cool. All right. And so the whole world shut down, and suddenly services needed to be moved online. And guess who has film in their background? Like Ann says, oh, you know what? I think I just met somebody. <laughs> Bring him in, right? And so here I am. I, I'm brought in, and she, shows, she has me show the staff a few pointers. And the next thing I know, she says it like she and Natalia went and had a little talk. I was there. I saw them doing it in the back of the room. Okay? So now I have a job. Rest over. Okay, that's it. Time to get to work. I can't say it's all that bad. Got me out of the house. Okay? So here I am, and I've been here the whole time. I've been with you guys the whole time. Sometimes um, I'm just, I like, I'm walking around um, out in the community, and someone will like, Rick, I have no idea who you are, but you know me. Thanks, Kim. So it's been great. And so I, I've been able to uh, just get back into film in a weird way. Uh, all my tactics, all my understanding of technology, it's all old. But it's been fun. And while I've been here, this is what the Evergreen staff is always asking me. Why are you here? Aren't you supposed to be starting a church? Yes. Yes, I am. Which I have been. I've been doing that the whole time. Um, and we're still moving forward on church planting. And today our, our launch team is here with us. But I don't think they even realize how significant that question was to me. Why am I here? Why has God placed me at Evergreen in this capacity? Forget the timing, because, like, the timing is a godsend. It's, uh, the timing alone just explains away and explains so much. But it's the role at Evergreen that fascinates me. See, God called me to lead, and I responded to that. Here am I. Send me. And then the first thing that he does is he puts me in a serving position. I'm not in charge of any ministry, but I have to serve every ministry here at Evergreen. And it is very humbling. The question that should be asked is, here am I. What kind of leader do you want, Lord? And the Lord says, here, let me show you. He put me in a posture of learning, asking myself the question, am I teachable? God is molding me with this. Are you still willing to learn from me? When we're put in charge, typically first thing is, it's like, all right, I got all these plans, right? And if you've got that leadership itch, you know what I'm talking about. They, they kind of pitch the idea that you're going to be in charge, and your brain is already starting firing up. I got, okay, I can put this together. I got these plans. I can work this out. I know these people. I can figure out what to do. Um, yeah, that's not how God wants you to work. And when God calls us to respond, the question that he's actually placing before us is, will you allow God to teach you to respond like he would. See, not being teachable was actually Israel's problem and the very reason why Isaiah was being sent. Here are the first words of the message that Isaiah would have to deliver to Israel. Go and say to this people, 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. When we are not teachable, we don't have a posture of listening and being aware of what God is doing or even understanding who he is and his character. And if we can't learn to know who God is, then we won't know who we are. See, God points out in verse 10 that we can't be healed until our eyes, our ears, and our heart have turned to him ready to learn. We need to, pre- we need to come to God with a teachable attitude. And when we do that, God gives us a promise. He, he gives us his promise in Psalm 32, verses 8 through 9, where he says, I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go. I will give you counsel. I will watch over you. Do not be like the horse or mule, which have no understanding. Now, they must be controlled by bit and bridle to make them come to you. See, God had to discipline his nation so they may understand the need to come back to him. Hey, you are not doing this right. And that means that salvation that he was promising is in the very same message that Isaiah would deliver. Do do I really want to go through my life as a stubborn mule? I mean, ask yourself that question. How long do you want that phase of your life before you finally accept the abundant life that he has for you? Okay, fine. You can bless me now, I guess. I'll start listening. Yeah, I've been given this gift to experience being in the presence of a healthy church and serving while being able to observe servanthood leadership. This last year and a half, I have been in a season of learning with the church while leading a launch team that is not yet the church. And when I look to Evergreen and I I look at your values, I think you're describing Ann and Jared because they're leading by serving. I have not known the body of Evergreen, but I have by being able to learn what is before me, the example that's set. Ann and Jared... um, Ann and Jared have been nothing but the opposite of every other leadership that I've been a part of in the church. I know that you guys are extravagant givers because it's all I know of Jared and Ann. And all I see is that the staff follows that example. I've been able to learn through differences, new people's experiences, their understandings of God, whether that's uh, ministry strategies, coaching, walking through COVID, just doing life together. Uh, Heck, even theology. I've been given this gift to sit down with Jared and talk about who God is and just talk about our viewpoints. We don't always come eye to eye with everything, uh, but that's part of the joy of learning and being able to hear someone else's new experience of how they're understanding God. I will say I've got Jared coming around to my line of thinking. Uh, It's going to take a couple more sessions. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, It's been this blessing. And what I've loved about Evergreen has been learning the nature of ascending church. That the gospel of Jesus stands as the centerpiece. Kingship and Evergreen have different ministry focuses, but the centerpiece remains the same. And that bonds us. This time of being able to be aware of what God is doing here has activated me to the mindset of the sending church. 
Activation is at the center focus of what God is truly doing to us. That we may be awakened from our slumber into this fullness of life that places us into the action of his kingdom, where we can freely stare at the glory of our king on his throne and his robe is wrapped around us, making us a clean people. Like I said, Activate is what Kingship Church wants to be about. And our vision statement is this, that our desire as his church is to help his people come to understand their purpose and value in Christ and equip them to be active in his kingdom. I firmly believe that God has called me out of what I was doing, even though it was for him, for that vision of witnessing people experience the same thing that happened to me when Jesus got a hold of me. You know, in, in youth ministry, I saw this um, dramatic, dramatic identity crisis happening with the youth. And it's not just been the last year. It's across the board in the last 12. And what I notice is, is that kids don't know who they are, but they have huge motivational issues. They have huge confidence issues. And I can't help but to tell you of one common thread that I saw happening. And it was so obvious as time went on that the common thread that was taking place was that there were absentee fathers. It felt like we were putting on band-aids. We were just doing patchwork before these kids become adults. It felt like, well, good luck, right? And I've wondered if there was so much more that we could do preemptively to help kids instead of getting them at the last stretch, being in the race with them from the very beginning. Did you know in Hillsborough, it is one out of three kids come from a single-parent home? One out of three. The vast majority of those are, are absentee fathers. And there's this epidemic of men. And, and we're not the only ones to notice this. Other, other churches are noticing this as well. But there's this absence, not just in the presence, like they're just not around, but there's this absence in engagement. I went through kids that uh, didn't have dads in their life. I have other kids that did have dads in their life and never saw them. Never saw them and they never talked about them. See, men are absent in the home, the church, and the community, and it doesn't take very long to notice that. And so we, we've been asking ourselves the question of, like, what would it look like to build a culture that actually tackled that? And, and I don't mean like, well, we just have to have a really good, solid men's ministry. Because if that was the answer, the church would have solved this a long time ago, right? But just like some churches have focuses on certain needs that they see in the community, what if there was a church focused on this? What would it look like for the church uh, that is both men and women chasing after this epidemic? And instilling and equipping all, not just one group of people or whoever we can get our hands on, what if we could equip all to become activated to their purpose and value? What if we could focus on discipleship of the whole family well and that that would take everybody in order to do that? Because the church is not one set of people. It's not young. It's not old. It's multi-generational. It's single. It's married. It's old. It's divorced. It's married. What if we could care about the future generation? What if the metric system was not how many people came on a Sunday morning? What if the metric system is that in 10 years, it'll be one, and it won't be one out of three, it'll be one out of 10? That's our goal. 
We call, we call these people um, sleeping giants. Um, they're sleeping giants because they're not awake. They're just going through life. And they're giants because they do not realize the impact that they could actually have if they just simply woke up. If they just put on the glasses and saw what God was putting around them. There's um, a story out of our launch team of, of an unengaged man um, who was not activated. He was just living life until someone came to him with intentionality and said, I want to take you for a beer. You and I, we're just going to go for a beer, you and I. And this guy thought, why me? That's really weird. Why is this person interested in me? And that conversation was one step that snowballed another step, and now that man is on our launch team and is planting a church. The person that said, I'll take you out to a beer, I don't think they could even think about what that moment would do for God's kingdom. Is that you? Is that your story? Are you the friend? Are you the one that needs to be woken up? It's because stories like that that we have this goal and we want to put outreach first. As starting this church, we want our front door to be our outreach ministry, to create a social gathering where we remove hindrances of what the church has normally been like for these people that are like, I've checked out church, I'm not interested anymore. But it's intentionality where a friend can invite another friend, just come hang out and experience the church body without any hindrances. My goal is for them to walk in and be like, this is the church I'm really confused. Oh, yeah, it is, and we care about you. And we want to prioritize that in the launch, and, and in doing so, it's actually costly. It's not very common to put a, a leg out first and say we're going to do, like, social gatherings, outreach, going to the community. That's, that's very expensive, so pray for us as we do that. We're in negotiation right now with McMinimums at the Roadhouse of what that might look like to say there's a place where people, it's a neutral space where people have already been and to say that is where the church gathers. Why don't you come and be with us? We have these sleeping giants that can experience the presence of the church body in neutral space. And in doing that, we empower the individual. We want to empower each person of the church and equip them on, I don't even know how to bring my friend to Christ. Cool, we'll teach you, but we won't do it for you. Because we believe that God has commanded each one of us to go and make disciples. And we think that there will be a better and more meaningful impact when a friend brings a friend to Christ. And so we kind of call this the inverted church. We take the cup and you flip it upside down and all the water comes out. I got news for you. I'm not a great speaker. It's not going to be aimed at me. I don't want it to be. I want uh, me to be in the shadows. Woe, woe is me. God's given me a gift of knowing grace and being able to help equip a people so they can see that it's not woe is them as well. See, it's this kind of idea and thinking is going to take huge commitment. And so it's not just being available. It's not just being teachable. But it's also being faithful to carry out what God calls for us. And... Um, I don't think this will be easy, and most certainly it won't. I think from time to time I will become distracted. There will be up days, down days. Um, I will, that boom box will look real good. Um, and there will be days that I just want to throw in the towel. 
But I believe we have a God who is patient with us, who extends us grace as he corrects us. Isaiah asked the Lord, how long, how long shall I do this? He ended up delivering this message to God's people for 54 years. This message of salvation for God's people. And at the end of the book of Isaiah, it describes God's faithful servant. And I'm just going to read a couple parts to you, and I want you to tell me who this sounds like to you. And I'll I'll jump around a little bit because it's it's long. But here it is. See my faithful servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed in our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. But after all the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he may bear their inequities. Who's that sound like to you? Thank you so much. <clears throat> when we are faithful, we can first look to our king because he is faithful. He is faithful to carry out the Father's will and how he will rescue us. Our faithfulness will be grounded in the fulfillment of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus reigns as king, we are covered in his robe and can remain faithful, trusting each step along the way. Our faithfulness to the Father imitates and mirrors the example set before us. And faithfulness brings this reward. We realize that there's this reward that we can actually have, and it is the fullness of life. And if you're not experiencing this, let me tell you, there is fullness. And just driving here this morning, as my kids are singing songs, as I'm a nervous wreck getting up here to talk in front of you, I could still look to my wife and say, this day is a good day and it is full. So here's my question that I leave with you. My question I leave with you is this. Am I willing to be available, teachable, and faithful to God today? Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we we come before you humbled. And Lord, we are eager as your church to do your will, for you to provide us the strength to make ourselves available. Mold us, Lord. Remove the things that hinder us from listening and understanding you, Lord, so that we may become teachable. And may us, help us, Lord, look upon you for our faith, that we see your faithfulness that spurs us on to be faithful to you. In your name, amen.